I ask now that you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18 as we continue our brief series on the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. You will recall that this prophet Elijah simply appears, and he appears to this wicked king Ahab, and he says, as the Lord lives, it will not rain for three and a half years except by my word. Terrible drought and famine has come upon the land, and last week we saw that the Lord had moved his prophet to a place called Zarephath, and there he was fed by this widow, this woman, and her son who were about to die, and the Lord provided for them oil and meal that did not run dry the entire time of the, of the famine, and that he raised the widow's son to life. Now we come to chapter 18, and we'll read together the first 21 verses. Let's bow in prayer before reading. Almighty God, we thank you for giving to us your word, and ask that our hearts may more and more become one with its message, that whether in the Old or in the New Testament, we would see that it's all from your sovereign hand and reveals to us your redemptive purpose for your people and that we, your people, may be sustained as we read this word and see Christ on every page. We pray as well, Heavenly Father, that those who are lost among us may be called out of darkness to light by the word of God proclaimed this morning. Yes, even from the book of 1 Kings. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 18. We read together, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive, and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, Have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth." 
Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. God showed his love for his people throughout their history in sending his prophets, just as he does Elijah at this point of Israel's rebellion, who brings the word of God to God's people. The great contest between Baal and the Lord is shaping up. And what is clear in this text is this. No one can remain neutral before the word of the Lord. That was true when Elijah the prophet proclaimed God's truth. It is true now when the word of God is read or the word of God is proclaimed. No one can remain neutral before the word of the living God. Three confrontations take place, as we have just read in this passage, and three challenges come from the Word of God in these confrontations. Three challenges from God's Word. The first one is this. It is a challenge that comes to believers. And the challenge that comes to believers is the challenge to clear discipleship. The challenge to clear discipleship. We see this in relation to Obadiah. Who was Obadiah? Obadiah oversaw the king's household. He was one of those men who feared the Lord. He hid some of the Lord's prophets, and he feared God greatly, the text tells us. He is one of those rare men who can work in a very, very difficult environment in which most men would compromise, and he does not compromise, but he retains his spiritual integrity. Remember the king that Obadiah served? This will tell you something about the environment and the temptations that he faced. This was Ahab, the Baal-worshipping king, who had married that wicked woman Jezebel from Phoenicia. This wicked woman who would have all of Israel become worshippers of Baal. Ahab tries to syncretize 
The syncretism is a kind of syncretism in which he would say, let's follow Jehovah, but let's also follow Baal. Let's acknowledge Baal in some ways and also acknowledge Jehovah. And so he defied the living God. He did all that God forbade a king of Israel to do. And now we see him in this chapter, this poor pitiful king, searching for some little patch of green, some little pool of water, so that he may water his animals. Did you notice it? Not the king who is to be the shepherd of his people, who is concerned that his people have water and food. He's concerned that his animals live. He's concerned with his horses and with his mules. He's concerned because he's king and he wants horses in order that they can carry his chariots into war, which also was forbidden to Israel's king in the book of Deuteronomy. He's concerned then for his animals. He is concerned for his possessions. He is concerned for his glory. He's concerned for his honor. He's concerned for his kingdom, but he has no concern for the living and true God or to be a true shepherd of God's people. The king's response reminds you that no one remains neutral to the word of the Lord. Judgment has come because of Ahab's response to the word of God. We read in verse 2, Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And why was the famine severe in Samaria? Because the king of Israel denounced the word and was not obedient to the Lord. No one, says a good writer, No one should separate the heat of the sun's burning rays from the heat of Yahweh's wrath. The Word of God, you see, does something to people. No one can remain neutral to the Word of God. And not only that, every time the Word of God confronts this king Ahab, Ahab goes deeper in rebellion against God. His heart becomes harder. And that's true also of us. That is true of people today. That when the word of the Lord comes and we do not receive that word into the heart, but reject that word, we become harder and harder under the word that is proclaimed. Well, that's the environment in which Obadiah, this man of God who fears God, is serving the Lord. The call then comes from Elijah to Obadiah. And remember, Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. He speaks to this man a command. He gives to Obadiah a word from the Lord. And he says, you go tell your master. You go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here. Now, Obadiah, as we've said, feared the Lord. Someone has said, Jezebel rages. She seeks the prophets of the Lord and drenches the earth with their blood. She persecutes them and tries to wipe them out to the last man. In response, the hand of the Lord places Obadiah in her way and uses him to hinder her program. Obadiah, the instrument in the hand of the Lord, frustrates Jezebel's satanic plan. Breaking through the clouds, we see the light of the gospel, the promises for all of Israel. So something of the beauty of the gospel of sovereign grace and mercy shows through this man, Obadiah, and the preserving of the prophets. He truly feared God. But even though he feared God, he was not eager to follow the commands of Elijah and go tell Ahab that Elijah was here. And we see actually a number of verses here in which Obadiah protests. Now look, you know, I, 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 I want to be a man who fears the Lord, but you're asking something too great of me here. I mean, haven't you heard that I really do fear God? I, I hid the prophets of the Lord. I gave them bread and water. I cared for them. 
But now you're asking me to go to the king and tell him that you're here? He's been searching for you. When people don't find him, he takes an oath from people to say that they've not found you. Now what will happen is this. We all know you're, you're the prophet. We can't pin you down. You're here and there and everywhere. I'll go and I'll tell Ahab the king. And then he'll come and the spirit of the Lord will have taken you away. You won't be there. And then you've left me in Ahab's hands and he'll kill me. He protests. He must have felt caught between a tractor and a tank. Elijah, Ahab. No, Badiah, this is what the Lord is calling you to do through his prophet. He's calling you to clear-cut discipleship. How wonderful that in secret you have hid these men. How great that you have retained your integrity, but now the time has come for things to be, for things to be clear. You're going to have to take a stand, a public stand for Jehovah. That's what things have come to. You're going to have to do what the prophet says. It was a call to clear-cut discipleship. And the word of the Lord comes to us this morning, to us who believe in Jesus, and it's a call from God's word to be faithful as a part of the believing remnant in our culture and even a church that denies the truth of the Lord. It's a call for you and me to be clear cut, out-and-out disciples of Jesus Christ. We are not called to secret discipleship. Oh, I can be a secret disciple, follow the Lord, know Him in private, but it's never going to touch the public arena. It's never going to touch what I say in public. It's never going to touch what people see or hear from my lips. During the Protestant Reformation, Calvin faced this with the Nicodemites. You remember Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? The Nicodemites said, well, we can attend the Mass and we can know Jesus in our hearts and just be quiet about it, have fellowship with Him, and continue to attend the Mass. And Calvin said, no, you may not do that. The Bible won't allow that. It's a time, the time has come for clear discipleship. Are you for me or against me? That's what the Reformation called for. That's what the Word of the Lord called for then in this chapter And it's what the word of the Lord is calling for now in your life and in mine. The call is to clear-cut discipleship, to let the difference that grace has brought in our lives show through. The Christian life is not dreamy sentimentalism. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's that concrete. You and I are not our own. We are bought with the price of the shed blood of Christ. And so we are called to be clearly disciples of the Lord. That's what the call of the Word in Obadiah's life was all about, and it's the call of the Word of God in our lives as well. God called him to do a hard and potentially dangerous thing. But what is our encouragement when the Lord calls us to clear discipleship and there is fear within our hearts? We find it in verse 15. In Elijah's response to Obadiah, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Now, he could have simply said, don't worry, it's going to happen the way I say, and I'm going to show myself to him today. But he doesn't do that. He says, I stand before the Lord of hosts. That's your assurance, Obadiah. The Lord of hosts is his name, the greatness of God, his character, This is your stay in the midst of clear-cut discipleship, Obadiah. The Lord of hosts, Herman Bobbing says of that name, the name Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, 
pictures God as the king full of glory, the king surrounded by his ordered hosts, ruling the entire world as the Almighty and receiving honor and praise from all his creatures in his temple. You and I are called to clear-cut discipleship, but in the process, you and I are not alone as we live for the Lord. Do you see God? Has your heart been captivated with a sight of this high and lifted up and exalted Lord? Do you see something of God in His glory? Do you live before Him with adoring wonder? Do you bend the knee in utter humility? Do you recognize the hand of the Lord behind all phenomena? Is the attitude of your heart one of loving adoration and dependence and trust in the Lord? Do you see him as Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of hosts who rules and reigns and sits upon a throne as he calls you to share your faith and live for Christ in this fallen world? This is the way to discipleship. And this is why we must cultivate in our minds and hearts a biblical view of the character of God. We should abhor worldliness and lightness in the things of God. And we should foster that depth of reverence and awe that will enable us to stand for Christ when we are called to be clear-cut disciples in a hard, hard, evil, and wicked generation. That's the first challenge of God's Word. That's the first call to us as believers, clear cut discipleship in the home, in the workplace, in your school, in your personal relationships, to be a clear-cut disciple of Jesus. Does God's Word speak to your heart this morning? Second thing, second challenge comes to Ahab, it comes to unbelievers, and it's this challenge. Judgment is coming, whether you see it or not. Judgment is coming. God's word to Ahab was a clear word. Elijah is here. Remember, Elijah means, my name is Yahweh. Elijah comes with all of his confronting power. The word of the living God is over against this Baal-worshipping, syncretistic king. It's the word of judgment that comes to this king Ahab. Ahab hears the word from Obadiah. Remember, he had been attempting to find Elijah. Probably he thought, if I can just find Elijah, maybe I can put him in chains, or maybe I can persuade him to reverse this curse. He probably thought that prophetism was something like magic. It's all in the prophet's hands. No, Elijah is the spokesman for God. He's simply speaking the word of the Lord. He clearly does not want to meet Elijah on God's terms. Ahab's word to Elijah. Did you notice Ahab's word to Elijah? He comes. He sees the prophet. And his first word to Elijah was, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Now I ask you, who's really troubling Israel? Is it Elijah the prophet that's the troubler of Israel? Or is it Ahab the Baal-worshipping, disobedient king that's troubling Israel? Tell me. Who is the troubler of Israel? But we see something here that we see every day and hear every day in the news reports. 
Unbelief calls light darkness. Unbelief calls bitter sweet. Unbelief calls good bad. Unbelief calls truth error. You stand up in this day and age in your culture and in some churches, and you say marriage is between one man and one woman. Oh, you troubler of Israel. You're the troublemaker here. You're the one who's troubling us. No, we're not the troublers in Israel. We're speaking as truth. Can't you hear Ahab now? Elijah, I don't hate the word of God. I've named my children after Jehovah. And he had. All of his children are named after Jehovah. But you see what he says in verse 18? Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. You are the transgressor of God's law. What is happening here? Verses 19 and 20. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab will come and his apostasy will be exposed, but he doesn't see what's happening. Ahab will comply with the challenge. His heart does not believe the word of the Lord. He's not confronted deep down. He doesn't sense or feel the confrontation with judgment. He's thinking undoubtedly to himself, let this be the end of Elijah and Jehovah worship once for all. I have large numbers on my side. There'll be this one prophet and over 800 prophets of Baal and the Asherah. The Lord, through Elijah, though, is bringing this man to judgment, though he can't see it. He's exposing his apostasy. He's doing what he said he would do in Deuteronomy 13, showing that he is the true prophet and that the followers of Baal are not. The Lord is confronting Ahab's sin head on. Now, what happens at Mount Carmel is but a small taste of what awaits those who shake their puny fists at God, and think that they may do so with impunity. Oh, how God hates doctrinal, ethical, and spiritual apostasy. And he would have us to see something of the enormity of sin in this passage. And so the warning that comes is this. The word of the Lord from Elijah is, Ahab, let's meet for a contest between the word of God and the word of Baal on Mount Carmel, Ahab doesn't realize that judgment is right around the corner. The Lord is confronting, and he doesn't even see it. And so be warned if that is you, because God will bring all who oppose him to the judgment, and there will be no escape. The challenge of God's word is a judgment that is greater than the judgment that will take place on Mount Carmel. It is the judgment of the last day, in which we read in Revelation 20, verse 11 and following, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Scripture teaches this, and you know it in the throbbing of your pulse as your conscience testifies to the truth of eternity written on your heart that a day of judgment is coming. The believer will stand in that great day solely because of justification by Christ's perfect righteousness, but apostate, fallen, unredeemed sinners will not, cannot stand on that day. But I did this great thing. I did this good thing. The Lord read your heart, and there was not one ounce of concern for God's glory in any of it. And so Ahab goes blithely to judgment. There on Carmel. His apostasy will be exposed. He will be judged. But he goes to it without seeing it. Who here goes blithely to the judgment? where every thought and intent of the heart will be exposed before the all-seeing eye of the just and holy God. And you are too blind to see what is coming. My friend, there's only one foundation for a day like that, and that is Christ Jesus. May God give you a fearful sense and despair over your sin and draw you out from self to Christ. May you see yourself as utterly ruined apart from Christ, naked without the wedding garment of Christ. And may He, through that conviction, bring you out of sin and out of self to the Savior, who alone can make you aware of the judgment and turn your feet from it by trust in Christ. That's the second challenge from the Word of God in our passage this morning. There's a third challenge, and this third challenge comes to the professing people of God. So it comes to the church, it comes to Covenant Presbyterian Church, it comes to those who are professing believers in Covenant Presbyterian Church this morning, just as it did in days gone by in this passage. The third challenge is get off the fence. You see, this contest for truth is called for, truth versus error. And God marked the spot, Mount Carmel. It had been a place of offering sacrifice, but now the altar is in disrepair. And that's where the contest will take place. Contest? What contest? Who can compete with the incomparable God? Do you remember the words of Isaiah 40? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught God knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. 
All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Contrary to all that you may hear out in the world about God today, this is the incomparable God of the Bible, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There is no contest. We're told in verse 19 that many came, all Israel, not meaning every individual, but it's extremely well attended. Some came because they were spectators, undoubtedly. They just wanted to see the show. Others came because they wanted to see the prophet get it. He's this one who's brought this famine upon us. He's the reason we don't have water. And who knows, there may have been sprinkled among them some of God's faithful people as well. There they are. The contest is about to start. The prophets of Baal... Elijah the prophet. Looks like a hopeless matter, doesn't it? This one man against all of these looks pretty hopeless. It's in the midst of that contest as it is shaping up that Elijah the prophet asks this penetrating question in verse 21. Look at it. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. How long will you limp between two opinions? Jan Ritterboss, Old Testament scholar, believes that this limping is a reference to a kind of dance that the prophets of Baal did when they would limp around the altar. Why do you halt between two opinions? They're syncretists. They want to say, let's attribute to Baal the weather. Let's attribute to the Lord some some things too. We can worship Baal and we can worship the Lord. We can serve Jesus and we can serve Mohammed. We can serve Jesus and we can serve... But no, you can't. How long will you halt between two opinions? It is an either-or And the question utterly condemns syncretism. Now, it's a question long ago, says Calvin, that was asked of Israel on her wedding day. Will you be mine? Remember that Hosea tells us that the Lord betrothed Israel to him. Is not the Lord a jealous God? But the people care nothing for this. They care about rain and food and bread and lust but don't bother me with spiritual and moral issues. Don't bother me to make a choice in my life between this or that. But the stubborn question remains. It just will not go away. Why halt ye between two opinions? Israel has become a harlot shacking up with Baal. How long will you halt between two opinions, saying that you are followers of Jehovah when your hearts Go after Baal. And that's what Jesus said to us in the passage read by Pastor McDonald this morning from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And this is the word that Jesus, the head and king of the church, brings in Revelation 3.15 and 16. When he says to the professing church, 
I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Why not both? Why not Jehovah and Baal? Why not Christ and Mohammed? Why not Christ and an unbiblical lifestyle? Why not? Because they demand irreconcilable commitments. Because both demand your heart. Because both demand your all. Every bit of you. Because the Lord will have no rival. So what occupies my heart and yours, your mind, your affections? You better be careful, people of God. Read Jeremiah 2 sometime. You know the theme of Jeremiah 2, if I can summarize it for you, is this. You don't love me as you once did. How many of these gathered here might once have been apparently faithful worshipers of Yahweh? How much of the professing church today does not possess the one that they profess? And it shows by syncretism and coldness and attempting to lay hold of two masters. So we have this truth. No one can be neutral before the word of God. God's word does not leave us unmoved. We must respond to the word. We have no choice. God's word calls believers to clear-cut discipleship. That's Obadiah. God's word calls the unbeliever to judgment. That's Ahab. God's word calls the professing church to serve the Lord alone. That's this question in verse 21. Now let's focus in conclusion on one of the main issues found throughout these passages. And this is why I've turned to the Elijah narratives, because we also live in an age of great apostasy in the church and certainly in our culture. The call to believers to recognize that we are distinct and separate from the world. The call is away from syncretism, the attempt to blend the truth revealed by God with the false systems of the world. That's why, young people, you can't say, well, I'm going to follow the Lord but then I'm going to marry this unbeliever. No, you may not do that. That's why we can't say, well, we're going to follow the Lord, but we're going to mingle pagan rituals in our worship. You can't do that. That's why you can't say, well, I'm going to to follow the Lord, but I'm going to believe in my system all sorts of things that are contrary to what the Bible teaches. You may not do that. And this has always been an issue for the church. You cannot serve both. Listen to these verses. Listen well. 2 Kings 17.32 They worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines and the high places. Jeremiah 19.5 They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. 2 Kings 17.33, they worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. 
And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 21, the Apostle Paul, I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. If you turn to the book of Galatians, what do you find? An attempt to mingle Jewish works righteousness with the sovereign grace of God. Syncretism. And it won't work. Syncretism is the bane of the church. Now sometimes syncretism is overt. In the Episcopal Church today, and there certainly are many fine Bible-believing Episcopalians, I'm talking about the mainline denomination. In the Episcopal Church today, for example, the view that many religions lead to God is just standard fare, preached from their pulpits, taught in their classes. In February 9, uh, 12, 2009, I'm taking this from a Christianity Today article, a devotee of Zen Buddhism was elected bishop of the Episcopal Church's northern Michigan diocese. What does it matter? Meanwhile, a Seattle area priest has been given until March 30th to decide whether she is a Muslim or a Christian. Syncretism is a huge problem in missions and always has been. Shall we translate Son of God, when we're translating the scriptures for Muslims, Shall we translate Son of God, even though it offends them, or shall we not? Shouldn't be a question. Of course you do. Of course it offends them. We teach them what it means. But there's a movement afoot today that says, no, you don't do that. You substitute it with other things that are less offensive. Must we tell a Muslim convert to Jesus, you must now leave the mosque? Well, of course we must. But what we're being told by many today is, no, you just stay in the mosque. You be a secret follower of Jesus. You continue to do what you've always done, but in your heart you can can be a Christian. Syncretism. And it can be more subtle. In how many ways are we influenced by our culture's unbelief and attempt to mingle it with our faith in Christ? So that it requires constantly being in the Word to be discerning about this thing. Now, my sermon this morning may be marred in a thousand ways. But in one way, it is not marred. I'm going to be crystal clear with you. It's Christ or, not Christ and. It is not Yahweh and Baal. It is not Jehovah and Islam. Jehovah and and other religions, Jehovah, and live as I please. Christ Jesus is Lord, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. And that verse deals the death blow to all syncretism. So the question comes through time to us sitting here today. Why halt you, why limp you between two opinions? The question was necessary because they wished to mingle Baal and Jehovah worship. But we who answer with all our vigor for the Lord and against syncretism cannot do so in pride. We must do so in faith, not in pride. We do so looking away from self to the Lord Jesus. Isn't it by grace that we say, I am the Lord's? And not Baal's? 
It is not to Mount Carmel that we must look, any more than to Mount Sinai. We must look away from these mountains of judgment to Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary, indeed, was a greater mountain of judgment than Sinai or Carmel. But it was a judgment that saves us from our sins. Though by grace God's people want to answer correctly, Why halt you between two opinions? Lord, I don't. I'm your follower. How often do we, followers of Jesus, have to say, Yet, yet, Lord, I say it only by grace because I fail every day. I can take no credit for a heart that now longs for you and desires you. Vantevere, the Dutchman, says, On Mount Carmel, God had to complain, My people, you do not answer me. On Golgotha, however, a man cries out in anguish as he feels the full force of the eternal forsakenness of God. My God, my God, you do not answer me. The punishment for our failure to answer fell on Christ while he suffered in our place on the cross of Mount Calvary, and as the Father did not answer him, or rather, did answer him, by pouring out the judgment that we deserved on him in our place. Where on that cross he paid a debt that we could not pay, and rendered an obedience that we could not render, So that the law of God in judgment that comes today and speaks its thunderous words has no hold over us who trust in Christ. When the law says, you owe me, our response is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the fire that will fall on Carmel, as we will see next time, the fire unseen by human eye, overwhelmed Christ, who became a whole burnt offering to God in our place. It is done, the great transaction's done. No debt remains to be paid. No guilt remains to be atoned for. And this is why he could say to the thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. And that is why he says to us, my righteousness is sufficient to save you. The blood of Jesus is the ground of our acceptance. The blood of Jesus is the only ground of our salvation. The blood of Jesus is the only ground of our justification. And it is the only ground of our boldness before the throne of God. And this is what the sinner needs. The blood of Christ pleads for me. Turn your eyes continually to Jesus' blood. And so it is right that we who believe in Christ are confronted with the question, why halt you between two opinions, so that daily upon our knees, by faith and repentance, we continue to follow the Lord who has purchased us. Why do you not answer me, my people? Christ answered in his perfect righteousness, Father, I say yes for my wayward people. I offer my obedience for my wayward people. I pay the debt for my wayward people. Receive them in my sacrifice. And now, Father, will you also through my blood and through the power of your Spirit give them hearts that when they hear the question, why halt you between two opinions, will say, I do not halt between opinions. I follow the Lord. The Lord He is God.
The Lord, He is God. God's people said, Amen. Amen.